finishing up in chapter 9 unless the Lord uh, kind of draws my heart to maybe one more. But uh, this is really Amos' final vision here. And obviously it is of the Lord standing beside the altar. And so he's kind of unfolded this prophecy uh, through these five different visions. And so we're picking up on that tonight. And uh, really it's, this is kind of the end. Uh, this is the indication that judgment now uh, is unavoidable and inescapable. Uh, and, and this is one of the, one of the few chapters where uh, we do have that assurance in the end where he speaks of Jacob and the restoration someday and, uh, for Israel. And so we do have that glimmer of hope, but it is obvious by this point in the prophecy of Amos that God's judgment was certainly coming. So let's, uh, let's read chapter 9 together, these 15 verses. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with a sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, even there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, for from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts and all those who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kephtor and the Arameans from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake us or confront us. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let me pray again. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we close out our study in the book of Amos, I pray that you would bring not only the truths of this chapter, but the entirety of the book and the, and the sobering reality of a righteous and just God who will bring even his own people into judgment. And Father, I pray that 
you might impress upon our hearts the necessity of obedient and holy living and living in a manner consistent with the, the, the character and the nature of the God whom we serve. And Lord, I pray that you might impress upon us as well a, a sensitivity and a seriousness in regards to um, walking faithfully, Lord, that we might not become like Israel in so many ways and, and disregard you and disregard your holiness and your word and your truth and, and, and the command, and that we might just fashion to ourselves a religion according to our own desires and fleshly lust. And so, Father, guard our hearts through this word. By your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I was really struck by a couple of verses in this entire chapter. First would be the first one, the part of the vision described here, and then the later, the latter one uh, where he speaks of the Lord uh, is, is confronting them with evil, uh, where he says, I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good, two of the pivotal verses. But he begins here with the vision. So just looking at that in verse 1, uh, he says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said, smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. And then he goes on to say he will pursue the rest of them uh, with the sword. So there are going to be some who escape this judgment of this collapse. But I think that the imagery there and the vision involves, uh, first of all, I think was so stunning as the Lord is standing by the altar. And so the implication is the Lord has been roused, uh, if you will, or roused up from the throne, from the sitting ruling authority now to take action. And so there have been warnings through the prophet. And then the, all of a sudden you have this final vision of the Lord now has sent locust and fire and, and, and the plumb line and all these things. And now you have the Lord standing now. So he has been moved now to take action in regards to his people. That in itself uh, is the imagery there is important. Obviously, God doesn't have to stand or sit uh, to, to act out his sovereign purposes in the world. But the communication of that image is critical uh, to saying to the Israel and to us as well is there is a point at which God is roused from his throne or his resting, as it were, and begins to take action against sinfulness and unrighteousness in every way. And so it's a sobering vision there. And most interesting uh, altogether, this vision is where he's standing here. Uh, he's standing beside the altar. It says there, uh, he stands beside the altar. And while he's standing there, he says, smite the capitals. And almost he's bringing, bringing the entire uh, edifice down upon the heads of those who would gathered there where the altar was. And that's really, that's really stunning because the altar in general would be viewed by Israelites and us uh, as a place of mercy. And that's the place where the sacrifices were offered and as they foreshadowed Christ, ultimately uh, that it was, it was functioning to bring Israel back into right relationship with God. They offered up the proper sacrifices upon the altar, those pointed towards Christ and grace flowed from there to, to, to treat the people of Israel according to the grace and mercy of God. That took place at the altar. And so it's striking and terrifying that now the Lord is standing by the altar, the place that represents what ought to have been the mercy of God. As I've kind of pointed out as we've gone through Amos, God has been sort of through Amos rehearsing. Look, I was merciful to you, a severe mercy. I sent locust, but it was a mercy. You didn't recognize it as a mercy. 
I sent consuming fire as a mercy. You didn't recognize it as a mercy because you didn't yield to it and come back to me. You kept pushing farther and farther away. So mercy has been part of the theme of this book and how it had been rejected and disregarded and they had moved away from God and now we have God standing beside the place that represents what ought to have been mercy. And I couldn't help but think about the New Testament implications here in regards to that mercy and that, that real, that true altar and that true sacrifice who is Christ. Because it's interesting here in the place that they ought to have received mercy, they're gathered there near the altar apparently in that place where mercy ought to have been received, they find destruction in the same place. He says, I'm standing by the altar and I say, smite the capital so that the whole edifice might collapse down upon those who are gathered there in the place where mercy should be expected. And I couldn't help but think jumping forward uh, in the nature of Christ himself, the judgment seat there or the altar upon which Christ is sacrificed. In that place, the Lord is roused and he is standing and the offer is made. Judgment and righteousness is there. And for those who are believing in Christ, they have the mercy that's provided there. But for those who reject Christ at, on, the, on the altar and his sacrifice upon the altar, there is destruction. So in the same event, there is a warning and, a, and an encouragement. There is mercy to be received here and there is justice to be received here as well. I couldn't help thinking uh, this week, thinking about this text but, uh, text, but you remember the bronze serpent that the Moses, the Lord had instructed him to um, post upon a pole and they would raise it up. They had rebelled against God. He sent serpents to bite them. And as a, as a crying out for uh, mercy, God instructed Moses to have the serpent or an image of a serpent mounted to a pole and he was to hold that up. And anyone who looked at that serpent hanging upon the pole would be healed from the, from the serpent's bite. And you remember Jesus refers to that as well. And he also says, unless the, the son of man like the serpent Moses lifted up in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And to me, the implications there is that when they looked to that pole, they saw the, their judgment. They saw the serpents which were sent to bite them. They saw a representative of their judgment, which belonged to them. And in the recognition of that, they were healed. And Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I'll be like the serpent. Uh, I'll be like the serpent Moses lifted up. When those look to me and understand in looking at me that that is their judgment there, they will be healed. They will be delivered from that judgment as well. And that's the idea I think is communicated here in shadow form at least. God is standing here by this altar, this place where their relationship with God was established through sacrifice and through their obedience. And because they had rejected that, this same place, from this same place now comes the judgment upon their heads. They had rejected mercy. And if I could just insert this for, for, for those who are outside of Christ, but even for the purpose of having the believer treasure mercy, but if we reject the mercy of God, if we reject Christ, there is no other alternative. That is to, that is to literally call for the judgment of God down upon our own heads. That is to look upon Christ and not see him as your judgment, but see him as a victim of something else, but not make that connection is to invite the judgment of God down upon your own head. That's exactly what Israel had done. 
over and over and over again. God had extended mercy and they had disregarded or dismissed that mercy as, as I've said, of some natural phenomenon or some, 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 some material reason or they justified it in some way and they thought, no, God would never abandon his people. He's holding us fast and they were rebelling against him all the time. And now, since they have rejected that mercy, judgment comes. As I said, the collapse here is, is not insignificant in that it is, is it, it is in the place where mercy would have been sought. In verse 1 as well, you see that this judgment sadly is unavoidable. He says, I will slay the rest of them with a sword. So if, if, if need be, they weren't gathered there in that mercy place, those themselves would be destroyed because they had rejected the mercy uh, of the altar. But if there are those perhaps who have not come to that place, I will pursue them as well with a sword. It is unavoidable. Nobody's going to avoid this judgment in Israel is what he's saying here. In fact, he goes on to say there, they will not have a fugitive who will flee. There will not be a fugitive who will flee or a refugee, refugee who will escape. And certainly for Israel, that's true. But in the larger sense, nobody, nobody is going to avoid the final judgment of God Almighty. It is going to come down to the very same emphasis here. There is going to be an altar upon which Christ is sacrificed and there is going to be a, a believing remnant who are trusting in that Christ as the sufficient sacrifice for sin and for them mercy will flow from the altar. It will flow from the place of mercy. But for those who in the face of such sacrifice reject that mercy in the very same place and in the same event their judgment is secured in that moment. It is unavoidable. If you have loved ones, if you have children or parents or cousins or loved ones or friends or co-workers who have rejected Christ and not received the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, there is a judgment coming for them that is unavoidable. They are not going to get out of it. And there's not going to be sufficient in that day to stand in that judgment place and say, I didn't need the altar because I live so well. I didn't need the altar because I went to church. I didn't need the altar because I did charitable works and I love people with all of my heart. I didn't need the offer because I contributed something greater than the offering. You have in that moment, that loved one has in that moment invited the eternal condemnation of God, the just due of rejecting the mercy of God. That's serious business. We ought to be evangelists in our own families and, and even beyond. We ought, to, we ought to feel the weightiness of those we love in this life potentially stepping into eternity apart from Christ, uh, not united to Christ, and therefore vulnerable and open and certain to, to experience the judgment of God. It is unavoidable. When I think about that as a believer, I am so thankful for the mercy of God. Because you and I, we were on that path. Uh, I was on that path. And you were probably a whole lot better than me, but you would have had to stand beside me at the judgment seat of God Almighty someday and receive in full the fullness of the wrath of God due for a single deviation from the character and holy character and nature of God Almighty. That's unavoidable. And mercy is the only remedy for that. So we ought to be giving God thanks for that. Notice as well, he kind of follows that up. There would be none to escape, but he also says there will not be a, a refugee who will escape. 
So it's unavoidable, but it's also inescapable. That's not quite the same thing, but they're very similar. But the verses are striking there in one through four. There will be no flight, no escape, though they go to Sheol or whether they be in the heavens. Those are two extreme opposites. No matter they go down into Sheol or ascend into heaven, no matter whether they climb upon the heights of Mount Carmel or go find the depths, the bottom of the depths of the sea. I think I've read before the Mariana Trench there, something like seven miles uh, deep in the, off the coast of the Pacific out there somewhere. Seven miles. Uh, 20, what is that? Seven times five, roughly. Uh, how many thousands of feet deep is that? That's the imagery here. Go to, go to Mount Everest, all the way to the peak of Mount Everest, or go all the way down into the bottom of the Marianas Trench, and I will call, I will come get you there. Your judgment will not be thwarted because you've gotten so far away or so deep or so high. There is, no, there is no escape from it. It's unavoidable. Everyone's going to come into this judgment. But not only that, there is nowhere you can go to escape from it. Go down into Sheol or some would say the grave. Some go down into the grave or, or ascend into the heavens. I'm coming there. God is not going to relent in judging sin. Notice in verse 4 was interesting as well, but he says, even though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them and will set my eyes against them for evil, for not for good. That's striking to me because you would have thought that, well, that is, that is the judgment. He's saying, he's saying, no, 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 that's not the judgment. <laughs> that's, that's the discipline. That, I'm, I'm going to send a remnant into captivity and, and he will uh, keep a remnant, he says, later on in the midst of that. But he says, even if they go away into captivity, they might have thought to themselves, I can spare myself by yielding humbly to my conquerors and they may show me mercy and the conquerors may even show you mercy and take you away to their nation somewhere and maybe even make you a slave. But I've got my life he said, though, the, though you go into captivity, I will come into the captivity and find you there and slay you there in the midst of the captivity. This judgment is the judgment of death. The discipline phase is past for, for these who have rejected God. The discipline part, all those locusts and consuming fires and plumb lines, all those mercies of God to call them back to himself, those have been exhausted now. The word of God has been withdrawn. There's no more hearing of the word of God. You are only ripe for judgment. You are the summer fruit now. You are ripe for this judgment, and there's no avoiding it, and there is no escaping it. Even if you think to outsmart God and surrender to your captors and go into captivity and even ally yourselves with them, I, am, I will come into those areas and I will take your life there. And that's what's so sobering about that last phrase. I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. That is a terrifying prospect. And to emphasize that, I think he goes on. Who is, who is it that turning their eyes upon me? Look in verse four, 5. The Lord God of hosts. That's, who, that's who's turned his eye towards you, Israel, for evil and not for good. The one who touches the land so that it melts. And all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. 
This is the one who builds his upper chambers in the heaven and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. It is this one who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. That's whose eyes have been turned against Israel here. That's, that ought to be sobering and frightening and terrifying enough for Israel. In fact, if there's, a, if there's a remnant in Israel, and there is, and God has called them to himself, it may be this kind of preaching and this kind of reality in which he's stirring that remnant up and bringing them and securing them to himself here. They're reminding them that this God, the one who is not to be trifled with, has now turned his eyes towards you, not for good and not for blessing, but the piercing gaze and, and the fiery gaze of justice in your life. That's the Lord who's looking at you, Israel now in you unbeliever so you have this whole ideal here in verse 7 and 8 as well you see uh, there 7 verse 7 and 8 you see there in some ways that Israel in their rebellion had forfeited as it were uh, their favored their favored status with God in fact he compares them there he says verse 7 are you not to me as the sons of Ethiopia uh, Cush uh, some translations may say there O sons of Israel, declares the Lord, have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt? That's where you came from. I delivered you there. But I also did the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kerr. I brought up these other nations. It's almost like he said, this nation with its favored status and its exalted position as the chosen people of God have abandoned their God. And now the eyes of God that were upon you for good and blessing have been turned upon you now for evil. And there is calamity coming in your rebellion. Are you any different from the other nations? Is there something inherent in you that makes you less worthy of justice than Philistines and Egyptians and Assyrians? No. Your favored status rests in my having chosen you, not in your worthiness. But you thought it rested somehow inherently in you and that it was yours to be used and exploited in any way you wanted to. But now you understand that I am holding you to the righteous standard that I hold the other nations to. And that standard is God. It's funny, but I talk to uh, unbelievers sometimes and without fail, uh, they do not conceive of comparing their lives to the infinitely holy God. And it's stunning to some of them sometimes when you finally get across to them, look, you're not going to be, you're not going to be evaluated as to how you lived up compared to your neighbor who professes to be a Christian or to the, to the preacher or to Billy Graham or to, or to some saint in the world. You're not going to be compared to them at all in regards to God's justice. You're going to be brought in and compared to the infinitely holy character of God Almighty. That's the, that's the standard. That's the standard. And in that light, no one will stand. There is none, there is none uh, innocent. There is none without sin. There is none not worthy of condemnation and eternal condemnation. That's the standard by which Israel would be judged. No different in that sense than the standard for Egypt and Cush there or the Syrians or Philistia, either one. All the pagan nations would ultimately stand before God and, and be evaluated according to God's own righteousness. It's a sobering thing to know that we will not live up to that righteousness ever, ever. Only Christ can be our righteousness. In verses 8 and 9 as well, 
This is where you hear some hope in the midst of this for faithful Israel. But there, I think it covers two things here. There's a faithful God and there is a believing remnant. Notice he says in verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. I think he's talking about that comparison. Um, uh, Egypt and Philistia and Syria. God is, God's eyes are on the evil kingdom. Certainly Israel had become an evil, evil kingdom. And I will destroy it from the face of the earth. It will not survive. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Not because they were undeserving of that, but because of his own covenant, of, of God's own word. God is faithful to his own word and his own covenant. They are, not, they are not spared because they are better than any other nation. In fact, because of their revelation, they may be in some ways more subject to the fullness of the wrath of God and judgment because they had the truth and were moving and walking away from the truth. They may be more vulnerable and more liable for the righteous judgment of God, but he, he will not destroy the entirety of Jacob because of his own word and his own covenants. Listen, this is exactly why I think uh, we ought to rejoice in the faithfulness of God Almighty. He does not change. He does not change. He is immutable to use the theological term. And thank God he isn't because he would change his mind a hundred times a day according to my stubbornness and my resistance to his guidance and his truth and his spirit. He would change his mind. I would certainly lose my security and salvation somewhere along the way. And I don't, not because I'm better or because I didn't sin as much today as I did yesterday, or because I didn't have a sinful thought today, but I did yesterday. That's not what secures me. It is his own covenant with himself to call a people out to himself and to call me from the dead and bring me to life. It is his covenant with himself to choose me and hold me that secures me. And in fact, that promise and that same truth becomes the, the catalyst for the bearing of Christ-likeness fruit, Christ-like fruit in my life. So even my sanctification is dependent upon this gracious and sovereign God who chose me. It is not resting in before my conversion or after my conversion in my goodness or my inherent goodness. God doesn't save me as a, by grace through faith as a lost man and then once I'm saved, uh, shift over to some works-based ideal and say, okay, I got, you out of the I got you out of the grave, Larry, but now you gotta make your way into the kingdom. So work hard. It didn't that at all. In fact, by transforming me to the image of Christ, he begins to produce in my heart as that newborn man a desire to honor God and to, and to pursue him and to behold his glory. And that has a transformational effect. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm desiring the things that God has commanded. They are no longer begrudging for me, to, by me. I'm not obeying begrudgingly. I am joyfully concurring with the law of God that it is good and it is descriptive of his glory and his righteousness. I want to live this way. I don't, in any time in my Christian life, I've never, I've never fallen into this hole that says that God is suddenly now accepting me on the basis of how well I do today. To me, God is, God's acceptance of me is what I need to understand the fullness of that helps me to do well each day. It is the, it becomes the motivation and the, and the catalyst for the desire to live a more godly life every day. It is not the means to achieve a relationship with God. 
It is the effects of relationship with God. So he is a faithful God. And in this verse, I think he means here a believing remnant. In fact, he says, behold, I'm commanding in verse nine, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations as grain is shaken in a sieve or sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. So everything that's in the, that's in the sieve that is not a kernel is going to be shaken out. And that's a bunch. You remember Elijah thought he was the only faithful Jew left. I'm the only one. He was depressed. And God said, no, 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 no. That's not right, Elijah. You may feel that way, but there is 7,000. There are 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. There's more than you, Elijah, but the nation is wicked here. And I'm going to shake it really hard with, all, with locust and consuming fire and with judgment. And every sinner, he says later, is going to die. And I'm going to shake the house of Israel so hard that all that's not a kernel, all that's not, all that's not grain is going to fall out of that. But not a single one of those kernels is going to be shaken out. You ever done any sift, sifting like that? Uh, I have. And sometimes you, you do that back and forth and, and, some, and, and a kernel will fall out. And, and if you're really conscientious, you might stop and get it. But if you look in your sieve and you got all kinds of corn, you're not going to worry about one kernel. It, if one falls out, no big deal. Just keep shaking it out and you put the majority of it in there. I love it here that he says, not a single kernel will fall out. I'm going to shake a whole nation. I'm going to shake a whole nation. And so violent is the shaking that they'll want to flee into the depths of the earth and to the tops of the mountain trying to escape it. And I am going to pursue them to the ends of the earth to bring judgment upon those who are sinners. And I'm going to shake Israel like it's never been shaken before. And you know something? Not a single one of my chosen elect colonels is going to fall out of that sieve. They are going to stay there. They will be secured in that moment. And everything that is not mine will be gone. That's a picture to me of the coming final judgment of God. This world's going to get shook hard, I believe. It may happen in our lifetime, and I think it's going to happen with maybe in our children's lifetime and almost certainly in our grandchildren's lifetime. But Lord, the Lord is going to shake this world, if this nation, and all that's not faithful is going to be falling out. And what's going to be retained is those whom God has truly called out and those who are truly regenerate in heart, the true grain or the true fruit of God's calling. They will remain, but they go through the shaking, by the way. Uh, if, you put, if you put all this into the seed, the, the kernels are in there, but there's a bunch of other stuff mixed with them, right? All kinds of chaff is in there and it's all mixed up. In fact, there may have been so much chaff that you couldn't find the corn that was in there. There was only 7,000 in all of Israel in Elijah's time who hadn't bowed the knee. The entirety of the rest of Israel had already bowed the knee to Baal. So there are very few in comparison to the great many who have gone away. So, so they may be buried there. So when the shaking happens, here's the thing. This is, you can make some theological arguments here, but here's the thing that struck me. The corn gets shook too. He doesn't pick the corn out and lay it over here and then shake. He, he shakes while the corn's in there. The wheat and the tares, you remember? He shakes while the corn's in there. So the true children of God, the true corn, the remnant, are going to feel the shaking as well. So Christian, if you think you're going to bail out before things get tough, that might be a little bit of a warning there because there may be a heck of a lot of shaking going on before you ever get out of this. 
And I think we're setting up a whole generation of professing Christians to think that they're going to exit out of here before things get tough. I don't care where you are in your tribulational views, but if the Holocaust could happen in this world, then the tribute, then it could get pretty severe before the Lord, if in fact the Lord raptures the church out, it can get pretty severe before that happens. And how many Christians do you think will stand in that day? those professing Christians. So there's a shaking going to happen and the corn in this instance is in the sieve with the chaff. The shaking is how you separate the two. Suffering. And that's the image, that's the communication he's saying here. That's what Amos is communicating here, God through Amos. And thank God in verse 11 and 12, uh, verse 10, he says, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. And particularly, he says, those who say here, the calamity won't overtake us or confront us. Oh, yes, it will. Oh, yes, it will. Uh, all those people who think that way will die by the sword. That's the shaking and that's the, that's the sifting. And that's all those who fall out of the sieve. But then we have this promise of future restoration for Israel. There are some who who think that literally happened. Some, some I've read who didn't believe that it happened in full yet. Uh, there are all, all sorts of folks who take different theological views in regards to uh, the church and Israel and different things. But generally speaking here, he speaks of a day of restoration. He says, in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So at the end of this shaking and the preservation of this kernels of corn here, he then moves to this idea of restoration. So the shaking's going to come. It's going to be this judgment there. And then there's going to be this period of restoration God, whether that's national Israel or whether that's spiritual and talking about the ultimate restoration there, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but, but there is a restoration that follows this shaking and this judgment and this final judgment particularly. And not only that restoration, but there is a future blessing as well. You see in 13 through 15, behold, he says, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. That speaks to abundant provision. Some people say material prosperity, which they believe that's a, and that's a reestablishing of Jerusalem and Israel and, and the prospering of that in a, in a temporal sense in this world. Uh, whatever the case may be, the communication here, whether spiritual or material, there is fruitfulness. There is abundance again. And the plowman overtaking the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seeds. You think about that imagery, plowman overtaking the reaper. The guy's harvesting this year's crop. And so great is the crop that he's so long in the field that the plowman who turns the soil under for the winter meets him in the field. And he says, what are you doing out here? It's time to plow. Well, I've been out here trying to collect all the harvest. It's still here. That's, a, that's an idea of an overabundance, an exceeding abundance and, and prosperity and fruitfulness. And so that follows this time of shaking, this restoration and this period of abundant fruitfulness. Verse 14, I will restore as well the captivity of my people Israel. And one of the things I thought about this text is we know that they eventually, uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah, they were able to go back, but you never see any prosperity nowhere near this. 
I mean, this doesn't seem like it describes that period. They, they survived and, and, and the Lord did, did great things, certainly for the people of Israel, bringing them out. But, but did, they, did they excel this way? And some people would say, so that, they don't believe that was the fulfillment of this. This is yet future. And I tend to lean in that direction. But he says, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wines and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them. And the last phrase in the whole book of Amos here says, the Lord, your God. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. Uh, sobering uh, reality here in this last chapter all mercy has been exhausted. God has been merciful to them um, throughout this period he's speaking of here. And finally, God says, I'm going to drop my plumb line down. Now I'm going to evaluate according to my own righteousness, the people of Israel. I was thinking about that as well. I don't think I shared this in that message, but not only is a plumb line used to, to gauge vertical, uh, but if you've ever used one, for you, those of you who don't know what that is, it's a string. Uh, mine has a heavy brass uh, bob on the end of it uh, that has a sharp point on it. And if you hold that steady, that thing after a while, gravity will pull it in a direct vertical line down. But you can also use that in another way. You can take a mark that's on the floor. If you want to transfer it to the, uh, up uh, upon the wall, uh, you can take that plumb bob and take it up on the wall and hold it and hold it steady. And, want, and as long as you have that point on that mark of the floor, you mark that string up at the top. And that's exactly the vertical from that point on the floor. You can also transfer a line from up there down to here. And I thought about that in terms of the plumb line that God says, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of Israel. I am going to bring a point in Israel. The wickedness of Israel is coming directly up before me. And my righteousness is coming directly down into the midst of Israel. That's why some people think it's a, it's a shadow of Christ himself. So not only does it measure vertical, it transfers the full wickedness of Israel right up into the presence of God, into the face of God. And it transfers the righteousness of God right down into the midst of their wickedness. And if there was never, there was never a greater reason for the judgment of God than that right there, for the, for the wicked nation to see the righteousness of God and for the wickedness of that nation to come up before this holy and righteous God. That's what they had exhausted. That's what they had exploited and disregarded and took for granted all these years. And now that time is up. And this judgment was unavoidable. And but for the mercy of God and him, his own sovereign choosing of a remnant to honor his own faithful covenant, only that, that is the only reason you will not be and I will not be among those who receive the fullness of God's judgment. That's the only reason. That's the only reason. He even tells his own people, were you greater than all the other peoples of the earth? I loved you because I loved you. The root of my loving you is in me, not you. I, my love motivated me loving you. It was a free grace choice of a people. And that people had that wonderful advantage and yet was denying this God. And they were ripe now for judgment. And so it will be with all those in this world uh, who pursue their own wicked desires and as Brother Shane's been sharing, just embracing this ideology that exalts man and makes man the center of all things and the, and the chief end of man himself is the exaltation of himself. All that sort of wickedness 
will receive in full the wrath of God if it were not for the mercy of God. And as the church, we become the instruments and the vessels of the communication of that mercy, which is Christ himself. And so the only hope for this wicked world is that Christians go out and, and, and yield themselves up as vessels of God to communicate the gospel, which will point them towards that only mercy available to them. And according to God's sovereign choice, he will choose out the dead and raise them from the dead and bring them to himself and they will be as dependent upon him for their salvation as you and I are sitting here tonight. If I could say one thing to Christians, I, I, wish, I wish from regeneration to the day you leave this world that every Christian would, would understand and embrace and revel in the fact that we are chosen by free grace. Never along that pathway assume to ourselves, no matter where God takes us, no matter how greatly God uses us or how insignificantly he seems to do, that we would never be drawn away into thinking that somewhere along the way we became worthy of that because we never did. We never did. Uh, every, every blessing ought to draw our hearts to the worthiness of Christ himself. Everyone, every breath, Every, every joy, every sorrow, every, every experience in this life ought to, be, ought to draw our hearts towards the treasure that Christ is. He ought to be growing and growing and growing in, in our esteem of Christ and less and less in our esteem of self. So we conclude uh, Amos with that. Stand with me tonight. Uh, kind of touching on the tribulation question because I'm sure some of you are wondering now. Um, I always said this, I'm, I'm praying for pre-trib, uh, but I'm preparing for post-trib. Uh, that's kind of where I come down. I, I hope the Lord raptures me out of here before that happens. Uh, but I'm praying, Lord, would you prepare me and just in case you don't do it that way. Uh, if I have to endure this great tribulation, Lord, help me to be one of those who were willing to lay down their lives for the gospel. I actually shared with someone today who was asking me about a workplace situation and they, they kind of uh, tested the waters and made a statement uh, in regards to their faith and on their website, it came back a couple of different ones, put a little, put a little thumbs up beside it and then the, the main people that they were accountable to went silent on it and they were asking they're kind of dealing with that. How vocal should I be? And was just kind of asking for counsel in those things. And at the end of some of the counsel that I offered them there, I said, at some point, one generation will have to decide we're going to be the martyrs. And even if it's not in a physical sense, I'll be the one who is willing to lose my job to proclaim the truth. And everybody's out there feeling it, but, but our courage level is not quite up for many Christians to be the first. But as those first ones, if, as God grants courage for those first ones to do that, I think the other ones grow emboldened in that. And they see that God, you know something, God provided a way for them even without that job. And maybe this job is not worth me uh, setting, sitting on my own convictions and maybe I ought to be vocal. And then they become vocal. And then another Christian sees it. And another Christian, pretty, pretty soon the Christians in the workplace are pushing back and they're saying, no, we are skilled. We bring many skills to this job that you need to be successful in this business, but you will, we, you will not get those at the expense of our convictions. 
And if you want to run your company with wicked people and those who deny the truth of God, then good luck. But I will not be a part of that. And so that's where we are in this nation. That's why the studies that we're doing on Sunday night, I think, are so important and why I'm so excited that we're, we're doing that as well. But let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for the, the truth, the example uh, we have before us when we read of Amos' prophecy here. And Lord, I do pray that you might encourage us and to be faithful and to be strong. It's easy to be a, a quote-unquote preacher and say these things. But Father, I realize that it's a little more difficult to be in an office somewhere and, and know that that yearly salary might be gone at the slightest mention of of uh, objection to the worldly way of doing things or certainly a, a, the affirmative assertion of some biblical truth and certainly the person of Christ. And so, Father, I appreciate the dilemma that they face, but I pray that you would grant us courage. Lord, I pray that we would reveal yourself to us in such a way that we would treasure you above everything, of everything that we have, every job, every provision that we have, that we might be faithful and, and that we might view a denial of Christ or a silencing of us of Christ's message as unacceptable at any cost. And so, Father, we praise that you would raise up many like that in our generation. Lord, we thank you as well for the cross. We thank you for Christ and the sacrifice there. We thank you for your sovereign grace and calling us from, from death unto life and from the old man, the flesh, to the new man. And Lord, I pray that you might pierce our hearts in a way that would cause us to want to walk faithfully, more faithfully every day. Lord, thank you for your word as well, for the truth that guides us. Thank you for those who have gathered again tonight as the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that your spirit and your word have been an encouragement to them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.